Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, if you're listening to this, I want you to do me a favor. If you're a Republican and you have not signed up for the Lincoln Project, go to lincolnproject.us. If you have friends or family who you know that are Republicans who are over what they've seen with Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and Marjorie Taylor Greene, have them come take a listen. Have them come to hear what a bunch of former Republicans know about politics, feel about the country, and believe we need to do to get us back to a place where a two-party system is functioning and this democracy works for everyone. Go to lincolnproject.us and sign up. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was the former Director for European Affairs on the United States National Security Council. As many of you probably remember, Colonel Vindman was one of the main people who discussed Donald Trump's quote-unquote perfect phone call that led to his first impeachment. Colonel Vindman served in the Army for 21 years and is a recipient of the Purple Heart. Since his retirement, he's become a New York Times bestselling author for his memoir, Here, Right Matters, available wherever fine books are sold, and is a senior advisor for VoteVets, a progressive veterans advocacy pack. Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on, Reed. It's been a while since we've had you on, so I want to go back to more than a year ago before Russia invaded Ukraine. And you were kind enough to do a phone call with a number of us. And something you said sticks with me every day as I watch the video and the photos come out of Ukraine, which was, if Vladimir Putin can't win this war in three days, he's going to kill as many people as he possibly can. He's going to make sure that Ukraine is decimated, that it is rubble, that if he can't have it, no one can. And those words, Alex, unfortunately seem to be even more prescient today than probably when you actually spoke them. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, that was his objective. Frankly, he's failed at multiple steps along the way, and he's also failed in destroying Ukraine. Ukraine remains a sovereign, independent state. Most of the country, unlike what appears on TV, lives in a peaceful kind of non-warlike state. About 16, 17% of the country is occupied. There's a thin front line that is very, very kind of sharp and difficult for the population. But it's also the largest country in, in Europe, east to west, 1,200 kilometers. You know, you get 50, 100 kilometers off the front lines and uh, life is relatively normal. You have kind of a functioning economy. You get back all the way to major cities like Odessa, Kiev, Lviv. Those are the ones most notable, but there are other cities that are quite large in a country that's before the war was uh, 45 million people you don't actually feel the war on a day-to-day -day basis in certain regards. I mean, people are going about their lives. Then there's that 1% of the time where Russia fires you know, terror barrages of drones and cruise missiles. 
to terrorize the population, to wreck the country. And the human toll has also been disastrous in certain regards. Ukraine fighting for its sovereignty has also lost likely tens of thousands of military-aged men, not just folks that had been soldiers before the war, but volunteers coming out of you know, the arts, the sciences, whatever the case might be, that have been defending their country and it suffered those kinds of losses. But it's a failure, an utter failure for Putin to you know, level the country. He underestimated who the Ukrainians were. He well overestimated the power of the Russian military. And uh, Ukraine will endure and will eventually return and, and thrive. What will it take for Vladimir Putin to turn his early Cold War era tanks around and go home? Well, there's a couple of different things. The first thing is going to be a military defeat on the battlefield. There's probably two or three critical inputs. The first one is a military defeat on the battlefield. His offensive that he was planning for, you know, for at least some time is really not achieving much in the way of gains. His military continues to sap its own strength. And this is before the Ukrainians conduct a counteroffensive and start to liberate territory. If the Ukrainians are effective and do liberate territory, including strategic objectives like threatening Mariupol, severing Russia's land bridge, you know, even getting so far operational objectives like Melitopol, where they could really threaten anything that the Russians have traveling east to west to Crimea. I think that could potentially break the back of the Russian armed forces without even liberating the entirety of the territory. Sometimes it's not destroying all of the enemy's combat power. It's achieving strategic aims that make it untenable for the Russians to continue to fight, like the R Ukrainians did in Kherson, forcing the R Russians to withdraw, or Kharkiv, where the Russians were off balance and Ukraine was quickly able to liberate territory. That is probably the most important thing. The other thing is, for God's sake, please, fringe Republican populist demagogues, stop offering Putin a lifeline. Stop offering him this belief that all he has to do is tough it out through 2024 and then he could have a friendly president, you know, a cheerleading president that's going to cater to Putin's authoritarian, tyrannical desires versus democracy that's frankly defending U.S. American interests. That is disastrous. It is absolutely terrible for, you know, folks like DeSantis to continue to offer this hope that all Putin has to do is to, to hang on a little bit longer and protract the war a year plus to achieve, you know, kind of a political condition where. Putin believes that support for Ukraine ends and he has the upper hand. That's a pretty disastrous outcome. So, I mean, you sat inside the Trump White House at the National Security Council, obviously, as a, I don't know if you were a detailee from the Pentagon or from your unit or whatever it was. That's exactly right, from the DOD. Yeah, so you saw this stuff up close. You've seen the cynical nature of this. You know, I, I had John Seifer on the show last year, and John was, I think, deputy chief of station for the CIA in Moscow. And I asked him this question, Alex. I said, what does Putin have on Trump? And John said, I don't know what, if anything, Putin has on Trump, but Trump believes he does. And so there's something there. But DeSantis is a different deal, Alex, because it's such a cynical thing to say. As we talked about it, to me, it's a fundamentally unserious position for a couple of reasons. One, as I've told the, the listeners before, if you work on a presidential campaign, especially one for a, a governor, it's a little bit different because governors have very little foreign policy experience. Maybe they go on a trade mission someplace because there's a particular you know, place they have a lot of trade with. 
But for the most part, you know, national security issues, you know, immigration, notwithstanding for some places, especially, you know, border states, is not really something they have. So they bring in all of these people, a lot like you, right, retired National Security Council officials, Pentagon officials, State Department officials, to basically bone up the candidate on, look, here's the baseline of at least what you need to know about how the world works outside our borders, right? Because a lot of them, you know, maybe they spend time in Congress or whatever, but for the most part, they come to this, amateur is probably too tough a word, but DeSantis did this not from a position of some deeper geopolitical thought or certainly any belief in democracy, American or otherwise, but as a purely cynical play to somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of the Republican primary electorate. But to your point, it has real world implications, which is Putin, who is meeting with Xi from China as we're recording this, now says to the Chinese, look, they're as divided as they're ever going to be. You know, we hang on for a couple of years. It's going to be a different world. So let's do this. But that means how many more dead Ukrainians, how many more wrecked buildings, how much more economic cost, how much longer can we ask the, our European NATO allies to hang on? And then ultimately, you know, how many more, again, hypersonic missiles, crazy suicidal tank brigade charges and everything else is Putin willing to go along with? Because Alex, as you know, he sits wherever he sits. And he doesn't care if, you know, another thousand Russians or Russian Central Asians die, right? It doesn't matter to him. That's right. You might get all the good advice that you want, but if your calculations are not for the national security, for the kind of the good of the United States, but for your own personal gain and they're politically driven, as Ron DeSantis, his calculations are, and all he cares about is currying favor with that 15, you know, maybe 20% of the primary electorate that he needs to get him across the goal line to a general election, then you're going to make pretty poor decisions. You're going to make decisions that, frankly, don't align with maybe the broader sentiment of the Republican Party, with polling suggesting that 65% of Republicans, one poll I saw, support U.S., support to Ukraine. So you're going to make those kinds of mistakes because you're really kind of catering to the loudest element of the party. And then you're going to do things that are terribly ill-considered on the geopolitical stage, where, in fact, Putin is casting around for a uh, theory of victory. It's not on the battlefields in Ukraine anytime in the near future, but it may be geopolitically, either with catering support from China or, frankly, in this case, simply looking for opportunities to fracture the cohesion and consensus around support to Ukraine, U.S. support, NATO support you make those kinds of base calculations, you're going to make mistakes. And then you're going to actually embarrass yourself like Ron DeSantis did and uh, have to backpedal and explain that that's not what, really what you meant. It was mischaracterized, just kind of nonsensical stuff. But you've done the damage and you've helped in a material way contribute to protracting a war and inflicting human casualties. You know, you mentioned the still, I think, pretty broad support amongst Republican voters for Ukraine. And this is the one thing, especially, Alex, among older voters, right, probably our parents' age, right, which is they grew up at the beginning of the Cold War. They grew up with duck and cover drills, which, to say whatever you want about that, I remember even in my elementary school in the 80s in Northern Virginia, Alex, every Wednesday, the bomb thing went off, right, went off. And so, like, 
Russia's never been our buddy. Russia's never been our pal. And I think a lot of Americans, especially older Americans, especially older Republicans who remember a time that they probably extol, you know, the morning in America era of Ronald Reagan, regardless of whatever else you think about him, right? He stood toe to toe with the Russian bear and the Russian bear backed down. They, they collapsed. Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. And not only that, whether it's Trump or Tucker Carlson or Ron DeSantis, now you've put yourself in league with not only the Russians, but the Chinese and the Syrians and all those former Soviet Central Asian republics, maybe the Iranians, maybe the Saudis, right? Like these are not the good guys on the block, Alex. What's shocking to me is that in part, this is a cohort, this is a, a Republican Party that fails to learn the lessons and learn from their mistakes. Part of the reason that we have this war right now is that we had a fractured Republican Party in the prelude to the war chair-led for Vladimir Putin in that year before the war started, indicating that costs would be low for this campaign, low from Putin's view that you know this was going to be easy, but also low from a political cost that he was not going to have to suffer the consequences. You know That's shocking that they haven't learned from that. Setting aside the other questions about how this does in fact cater to what the Republican Party has traditionally been relatively consistent and strong on. Pushing back on authoritarianism, supporting democracy, you know, kind of this ideological struggle between good and evil during the Cold War. And I think that part still resonates with the older group of Republicans that you refer to. But there's something lost in translation where it doesn't seem to carry across or much more self-serving short-term interests are driving the decisions that the Republican frontrunners are taking right now. Well, I mean, I've said this before, and I really do believe it, Alex, and you've seen this stuff up close in your past life. When you make a deal with the devil, there's very rarely, if ever, a way out. And so for a guy like Ron DeSantis and all Republicans who want to be leaders or who want to remain in office, they've made their deal. The devil in this case is, if you want to name it, it's Donald Trump. If you want to call it a movement, it's MAGA, white nationalism, Christian nationalism, whatever. But to have any chance of advancement, you have to try and thread a needle that's an impossible needle to thread. And so what happens, to mix my metaphors, is you end up in the middle of the highway, which is if you take the path of the rule of law, decency, you know, the common good, the Constitution, you know, the MAGA people come after you. And if you go deeper into MAGA, which is what most of them do, then you get sacked by what's left of the establishment in the Republican Party, lots of U.S. senators, a number of U.S. senators anyway, the donor class, the media, the national security set. And so you're screwed one way or the other. You got to choose a side. Now, in this case, Ron DeSantis has chosen. Donald Trump has long since chosen. A lot of Republicans have since chosen. And you see now that, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, continuing aid to Ukraine. Right now, you see the things like the Marjorie Taylor Greens or even the Kevin McCarthy's are saying, we shouldn't be sending money or arms to Ukraine when we can't secure our own border, right? Trying to conflate two entirely unrelated things, because again, it appeals to a very narrow slice of Republican voters. But what else can the United States be doing? What else can our NATO allies be doing for Ukraine to ensure that they can stay in this fight and ultimately be victorious? There's a lot more we should be doing. I mean, this line continues to shock me that somehow there is a direct link between our overseas obligations and providing national security stability around the world for a 
environment that benefits the U.S. directly in terms of trade, stability, and a border issue, which frankly is important to be addressed. But you know, the dollars don't really kind of line up in the same exact way. I think there's an appeal to applying dollars for serving U.S. interests, U.S. taxpayers' interests. That actually is cross-cutting. It probably doesn't just appeal to you know MAGA folks and the border wall. It also, frankly, appeals to probably the left and moderates. But the thing about the moderates is that you could actually make a case that they'll listen to. Whereas I'd say that the border wall is purely kind of a straw man that no matter what points you make is going to be irrelevant because all it is is you know kind of window dressing argument. In reality, for a tiny, tiny portion of our national gross domestic product, a quarter percent, five percent of the budget for defense, we basically eliminated Russia as a conventional threat for maybe as much as a decade. We could have poured $40 billion into more brigades, more missiles, all sorts of other things to try to deter Russia with no guarantee that it's going to work. But giving those resources to Ukraine, they've wrecked Russia's military. Is there potentially a better return on investment? You could apply the same logic to China. You could go ahead and invest in a couple of additional aircraft carriers and man them and operate them. Or you could demonstrate the costs of wild, naked aggression in terms of economic costs, in terms of isolation, in terms of what it means for your military capability and your ability to defend yourself and achieve other kind of national security aims. And you can do that no better place than investing in Ukraine. So when we talk about, you know, well, are we distracted from China? No, we're not distracted from China. That's what the Pacific fleet is for. (laughs) That's what the Pacific fleet is for. But the deterrent value of investing in Ukraine and wrecking the Russian military is much, much greater than buying another, you know, aircraft carrier or whatever, wherever else somebody thinks is worthwhile. I think the reason that we could invest heavily in China now, or we are, by the way, the latest defense budget kind of has been finally realizing the pivot to Asia because there's been this perennial argument about, well, do we put resources to Russia and meeting the Russia challenge or China? It's been back and forward. And we had to basically put resources to both because Ukraine has destroyed Russia's conventional military capability. We now have the ability to pivot directly to China in a way that we couldn't in the past. That is much, much more valuable than frankly, anything else that we could be doing with those same kind of limited resources. I mean, uh, Russia, not to make too light of it, Alex, is basically a giant gas station with nuclear weapons at this point. It's certainly approaching that. I mean, they could engage in smaller contingencies. They could cobble tens of thousands of troops together, but they can't do anything major. They're not going to go to war against NATO. They're probably not going to attack any of their larger neighbors. You know, they might need a win somewhere on the back end of this. That's why I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, the smaller states on their borders are vulnerable, but they're largely irrelevant to kind of U.S. national security outside of the nuclear sphere. But, you know, this isolationist argument about why we shouldn't be putting resources to Russia has a much more basic explanation, which is catering to Donald Trump. Donald Trump has a deep animus towards Ukraine. He has a fealty or kind of affinity for Vladimir Putin and Russia and authoritarians. And everything else is kind of, you know, way to frame an argument, do a little bit of smoke and mirrors to explain why we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine, we should be supporting Russia, but there's no real kind of substance behind it. It's simply these folks are trying to ingratiate themselves with Trump. I want to talk about one other thing that the sort of MAGA Republicans have been talking about, which is 
you know, we shouldn't be messing with Russia because they have nuclear weapons, which seems to totally disregard the 40 some years of the Cold War, where we had tens of thousands of nuclear warheads pointed at one another. We knew that, right? We had treaties and everything else. Like, this isn't something that's new to the United States. And somehow now it's like, okay, well, if that's the case, then we should bow to China. We should bow to India. We should bow to Pakistan. Anybody that's got a nuclear weapon, Alex, now has to be somebody who we're afraid of. That seems antithetical to America. It's an absurd foreign policy. Nobody's interested in nuclear war, certainly not the U.S., definitely not Russia. But the fact that there's a whole line of thinking around not defending U.S. interests, European stability, because an adversary has nuclear weapons, sends exactly the wrong message. It basically invites the proliferation of nuclear weapons around the globe because bad actors will say, this is all we need. We need to invest all our resources in nuclear weapons and then we get away with everything we want because we won't be challenged. That is a terrible, terrible precedent. Frankly, when these right-wing talking heads make their kind of argument, they end it at, we shouldn't be messing with nuclear states. But if you ask them a question about what the implications are of succumbing to nuclear terrorism, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have an answer for you. But I think we should be doing far more to help Ukraine win and win fast. The way I think about the war in Ukraine right now is campaign cycles. Russian offensive, where Russia is basically kind of sapped of its strength, they culminate, and then Ukrainian counteroffensives that liberate territory. We experienced that with Kharkiv and Kherson uh, last year. We're going to experience something similar in the spring, summer, you know, early fall this year. We'll see how long it takes for them to liberate territory. But this could be a war that starts to wind down with one more campaign cycle with Ukraine liberating territory this year. But what I'm concerned about is that the Ukrainians aren't properly armed to ensure one campaign cycle and that they have you know, enough to do a little bit more damage and liberate some territory, but not enough to kind of break the back of the Russian armed forces. And this plays out in a second campaign cycle, a second campaign cycle that sees another Russian mobilization extends into 2024, where you have kind of all this U.S. domestic politics and potentially weakened support for providing additional kind of financial aid and weaponry to Ukraine. That's dangerous. There's even a bigger factor that I'm starting to get a little bit concerned about. There is not a lot of merit to China stepping in in a big way and providing Russia support. It's more costs. U.S. and European sanctions on China further Chinese isolation, taking a deteriorating relationship and kind of accelerating that further. But there is one scenario in which it does kind of make sense, which is Russia in a protracted war scenario that keeps the U.S. focused not just on this pivot to Asia, which we've been able to realize. I talked about the fact that this is the first time that we're really focusing in the direction, but keeps the U.S. distracted. So China supporting Russia keeps the U.S. attention in two different directions. And the longer this war goes, the more potential urgency there is with a weaker Russia for China to bolster it. So like this, the U.S. has to operate in two different directions, Atlantic and Pacific. And by not providing Ukraine with enough support to win sooner rather than later, we're potentially nurturing a situation where you do have China step in, and that could be a bit of a game changer. It's not going to allow Russia to take a lot of territory, but it would allow Russia to sustain a war effort for a long time. That is very dangerous. That's why we need to be providing 
not tanks six months from now, but tanks now, U.S. M1 Abrams tanks. What about F-16s? You know, F-16s is a good thing because it's recognizable to the American public. It's really Western air power. So that could be, you know, Swedish Gripens, could be Raphael's, Tornadoes, uh, kind of the European analogs to F-16s. Those would make sense. F-16s also would make a great deal of sense. But maybe there's a way to, like, promise Ukraine F-16s and unlock all these other European fourth generation fighters like we did with the M1 Abrams and Leopard. Uh, and then Reapers and Predators, these types of drones need to come in in large numbers. And then Attackums, which your your audience has got to be familiar with. These are the long range rockets that go on kind of a high Mars platform. These things are essential to get in now before we pass this, the opportunity to get it into the fight for Ukraine's counteroffensive. So I am an amateur historian at best, Alex, and I would say mostly ignorant on Chinese foreign policy. So just if you can explain to me, the layman, why Xi is in Moscow right now, what benefit is this? He gave a speech to when he was formally reelected or whatever. He's basically the dictator of China now, right? That, you know, he now is starting to blame the United States for China's internal issues. Why does China want to hitch its wagon to a faded, maybe dead star. So I think the fact is she's been the dictator for a while. It's just he was a dictator supported by kind of this view of consensus from the Chinese Communist Party Politburo that had some say in, in the affairs, but he was still kind of, the you know, by far the most important actor. Now he's kind of undisputed and unconstrained. And he's going to be there for at least another five-year term, potentially multiple terms. So he'll be there for quite some time. China and Russia have been converging for some time. I would say that since she became the premier more than a decade ago, he and Vladimir Putin have been building a kind of a strong relationship built on this notion that the national security interests of Russia and China align in pushing back on U.S. power, in their view, U.S. unilateralism, that they needed to collaborate in order to advance their own interests in the globe, setting up a kind of a different ideology, separate and apart from democracy, kind of a Chinese version of a thriving capitalist economy of sorts, but with a dictatorial government. The Chinese and the, and the Russians had uh, like-minded views on that. They also needed to push back on the U.S. in the U.N. Security Council and the fact that the U.S. was able to, in certain ways, kind of have its way, bringing the Security Council behind it as the sole superpower, and that they kind of converged consistently cooperating to spoil U.S. efforts in the Security Council. Economically, they've been working together. China needed an engine to drive its economy. So all these different reasons. Now, both Russia and China are actually kind of more fragile than they were a decade ago in certain ways. Russia had just undertaken a fairly significant rearmament program, you know, was looking like it was going to develop a powerful conventional capability. China, its economy has expanded significantly, but the growth rates have deflected down significantly. They were hoping, you know, kind of double digit GDP growth or high single digit GDP growth. Now it's like low single digit GDP growth. Some indications that that might end up turning into a kind of a recession or negative growth. There's a, a maybe even a more of an urgency for them to cooperate and push back on the United States that's actually gotten more powerful in, in certain ways and demonstrated some of that power over the course of the past year by rallying the whole democratic world against Russian aggression. And 
I'm trying to remember how many visits they've had to each other, but together back and forward, Putin visiting Beijing and Xi visiting Russia, it's well over a dozen visits. And this is the first one that she's conducted since he won his you know, third term in office. And this is just in a way for, for to bolster uh, Putin's support. There may be even an effort to kind of rabble rouse and promote this Chinese peace plan to end the war between Russia and Ukraine. I think it's going to end up being a pretty nonsensical, but there could be demonstrations in that regard. So China's got a number of internal issues. You mentioned that the economic growth has slowed significantly. This is a country of 1.6 billion people and shrinking, right? This, I think 2022 is the first year they lost people. India will surpass them as the most populous country. We saw a little bit of the crack, Alex, because of the total COVID lockdown stuff when people just refused to be stuck in their apartments anymore. And that footage got out. And that probably, I would assume, you know, look, there's, I don't know how, how big the security services are. I know it's a complete surveillance state. The People's Liberation Army is probably in the millions. So like, there's a lot of force to keep these people down, but even still, there's still a lot more regular Chinese than there are people in charge. And they have a middle class that, you know, wants to continue to grow and expand. But again, how does a China do that in the context of like, you're poking, I don't know if we're their biggest trading partner, we got to be close on a dollar for dollar basis. I think they probably also assume a lot, we, they probably buy a lot or they used to buy a lot of our debt. So they have a lot of stuff like they got to get their knitting right internally. And that is a significant thing in a country the size of China. I think for them, they would like to have their cake and eat it too. They would like to have a stronger relationship with Russia, a like-minded authoritarian state that's providing them access to a huge amount of gas and oil, but they also want to have a trade and uh, continue to grow their economy as they have for the past almost three decades with an economic explosion driven by trade with the West. But I think it's, you know, just like we have to have a nuanced foreign policy, it can't be the bumper sticker of China as the inveterate kind of a competitor uh, through the rest of the 21st century. These are big states with complex needs, economic, political, informational, military, all these different needs need to be kind of balanced. And I think we don't have that kind of nuance right now with China. We don't need that kind of nuance with Russia. Frankly, I'll argue it's a different kind of problem. There, it's all kind of stick at this point because Russia is so heavily leveraged uh, military means to achieve its political aims. Severe costs need to be imposed on Russia. And all that we need to do there is continue to bolster Ukraine to liberate its territory. And we achieve what we need there. Do you think that China, you know, I know that there's always been this idea that for the Chinese, that Taiwan is still actually a part of China. Do you see any threat there from the Chinese deciding to invade Taiwan? It's definitely a point of national pride. They have a long history and most of that history has been as the most powerful state in the world, wealthiest, most powerful state in the world, in large part because of the population. And they see Taiwan as a part of China. The reason that they're not using military force to incorporate Taiwan is one, that there is a severe cost to be paid, including potentially direct US involvement in defending Taiwan, being isolated from the international system and trade and growth. That's an, another huge cost. And they know those costs are real too, because they've seen that play out over the past year plus with Russia. Russia has been isolated by the democratic world and it's been beaten on the battlefields in Ukraine. 
And there's no guarantee that China, even with its multi-million person army, can actually achieve, easily achieve domination of Taiwan. Yeah, because you got to get them there. You got to get them there. I mean, there are islands along the way that China can do, but is it worth the cost? No. Uh, there are some islands right off the coast of the mainland that they could easily seize. But the Taiwan, the island, the major island itself is a long ways away. And that requires a significant amphibious force, a large air force, stockpiles of weapons and missiles and rockets. I think they had in mind a idea to be in a position to conduct a military operation by 2030, let's say, you know, a decade from now, they're building towards something of that nature. Sinologists might have a better idea of the dates, but in fact, it was probably like a ways away. And now they have to rejigger that timeline to figure out, well, maybe our expectations were a little bit rosy on when we'll have everything in place. We need to double all of the material we need. We need to make sure that our military is actually capable of achieving its aims and that we're not subject to the same kind of vulnerability that the Russians were, which is the Russian military was painting a rosy picture of their capabilities and it was not material. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to have an army, right? It's another thing to send it into the field. And and you noted something too, Alex, that you probably have experience with, which is once an army goes into combat, regardless of where it is, who it is, everything else, it chews up men, machines, ammunition, supplies, like, and it becomes this sort of gaping maw that you can't ever feed enough. I think that's right. It's highly unpredictable. Russia was assessed to be the second most powerful military in the world. And if Russia gets mauled so bad in you know, what was considered kind of the backwoods in Ukraine, that was obviously not the case, but that's the way you know, most of the world perceived it. What does China look like in Taiwan when they have to conduct one of the most notoriously difficult things, which is an amphibious operation? And it's like 90 miles. Like this isn't crossing the English Channel from the south of England to Normandy, right? With complete air cover, domination, everything else, right? Like this is a different ballgame. Yeah. And the Taiwanese military is assessed to be underprepared for that kind of contingency, but they do have advanced capabilities. They have things that the Ukrainians wish they had, like F-16s and things of that nature, that could put up a much greater fight than what the Ukrainians had to start with, at least. I'm sure it's the same in warfare, Alex, but as, as Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? All right. So let's zoom back out of Asia and back down here to the United States as we close out here. You have been gone from the White House for a number of years. We've seen Trump defeated. We've seen Trump in sight and insurrection. We now see that it does not appear domestically that the Republican Party is either A, free from Donald Trump and the sort of MAGA influence, or frankly, desires to be. So what would you say to those, and I'm going I'm to use air quotes here because I'm not gracious enough to do better, Alex. What would you say to those moderate Republicans in, let's say, the U.S. House who know all of this is wrong, who know that Trump's position, Marjorie Taylor Greene's position, Ron DeSantis's position, Tucker Carlson's position on Ukraine and anything domestically is ridiculous, unhealthy, dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. What would you say to them if you had a call with one of them? What would you say? You know, it's interesting. There's no point in talking to a, a slice of those people because they have been captured by a cult leader and there's nothing that you could say to kind of change their mind. But there are other aspects of the Republican Party that are slightly more thoughtful and they act on a different kind of principle. I think the, the sliver of the Republican Party, the donor class of the Republican Party, is with 
Trump and MAGA because they see it as a way to achieve their financial goals. That's a significant portion of the party. But I don't think that they're accounting for other issues. Yes, there might be a tax cut, but there's greater instability. There is a polarized political system that has, in fact, paralyzed the ability to keep the economy from realizing its maximum potential. You know, whether that's investment in infrastructure, those types of things are kind of subsumed for the immediate gratification of a tax cut. So there might be a way to convince those folks that we need to account for the big picture, not just for the immediate tax cut, but the stability that's allowed them to prosper in the first place. The MAGA folks, there's probably not much to do. The remainder of the party, maybe like, you know, outside of the MAGA base, but they're kind of traditional conservatives. There is a case to be made that it's time to remove the Trump colored glasses and to recognize that if the Republican Party was about national strength and security, the party doesn't represent that now. In fact, I'd say that the Democrats have been far better on defense and national security than the Republicans have. And if the Republicans want to stay true to their kind of core values and ideologies, they might need to either look elsewhere or reform their party. So there's, I think, a a logical case to be made. We've discussed a lot of that with regards to how far afield the MAGA Republican Party has gone with regards to pushing back on authoritarianism and supporting democracy. I think the same goes for the way the MAGA landscape has hyper-polarized our society that's weakened it. We're still by far the most powerful country in the world, and we can continue to maintain that edge. But frankly, we have to have a functioning political system with two functioning parties, and there is no way that aligns with Trump or MAGA fringe maintaining control of the party. Well, I, I think that's right. And as I've said before, unfortunately, and I said earlier in this conversation, when presented with the option at the fork in the road, and there's so many forks in the road that so many of these quote unquote leaders Alex have had, whether or not to take the path back to the rule of law, light instead of dark, good instead of bad, decency versus indecency, morality versus amorality, or deeper into the MAGA, to your point about the immediate effect of things, they always go deeper into MAGA because they think, well, I don't want the fight this time. I don't want the fight this time. I don't want the fight this time. And as you know, being not only Ukrainian by birth, but also a national security expert, the more that you placate bullies, the more they will do until finally somebody stands up and punches them in the nose. and. Unfortunately, for the country writ large, we haven't seen anybody willing to do that yet. You know, it's interesting. I think the midterm elections were a little bit of that punch in the face, but I think a couple more blows need to be landed. Uh, 2024, I think after another pretty devastating loss similar to 2020 for the Republican Party in 2024, that could be a wake-up call, but we'll see how things go. Well, I certainly hope so. And we're certainly building the alarm clock for it. Alex, all right. Before we let you go, where can our listeners and our viewers today find you online? Sure. So I'm on uh, Twitter at avidman.com. I hit the news uh, occasionally. My biggest investment now has been through the Vet Voice Foundation. It's uh, affiliated with the Vote Vets, where I'm a senior advisor. And I run a think tank, a national security think tank. So we're worried about geopolitical issues, Russia or Ukraine war. Middle East, China, Western Hemisphere issues. But that's another way to track me down by following my activities with the Vet Voice Foundation and my Institute for Informed American Leadership. Well, amen to that, gang. Go find it and go check it out. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok 
at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Alex Venman, thanks for all you do. Thanks for your service and what you and your family have done for this country and everybody else. We will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.